0: I learned that from an early age that stems from a painful experience of basically being bullied in preschool. Mm. So my mom and my pediatrician back at the time when I was four years old, they decided uh, that kid needs some more confidence. So let's put him in judo.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So I became a martial artist and a judo instructor later on in college and whatnot. Mm. So I started on that path of the warrior and that has been just with me. Um, And since Structured sports is hard when you're growing grown-up and a job and family and all that. Um, I put that energy into a military ministry.
1: But now, I I mean, somebody could say you're running away from something or you're running to something. Which is it? Both, always. (laughs) Constantly running.
2: (laughs) This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com. You are listening to the Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about the psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of end of life care. You can find our podcast everywhere you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to this podcast, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes and any platform you listen to the show from. And now, here are your hosts, Joe
1: and Saul. Welcome to this episode of the Hospice Chaplaincy Show. Today, my co host Joyce is out of town, so I'm here, but I have special guests for you. I have Daniel Haas and Dev Chambers. Could you guys introduce yourselves?
0: Yeah, hi. So, I'm Daniel Haas. I'm a full time Hospice Chaplain at Compasses in Houston, Texas. So, there we serve about 80 patients and their families all over a metropolitan area of 4 million people, and that's a lot of hours on the road. So I love listening to podcasts, and that's how I run into you guys. Also on the side, I'm a chaplain in the Army Reserve, and those two ministries of mine, well, they really um, influence each other in positive ways and help one another out. So maybe on
1: that intersection, we can talk a little about today. That's good. Thank you for joining us. Dev?
2: Yes, uh, I too am a full-time hospice chaplain and uh, bereavement counselor. I work with a small hospice in the Pittsburgh area. Uh, Our name is Pilgrimage Hospice, and I bring greetings uh, from them to you all.
1: Thank you for joining us. Uh, Daniel, where did you grow up? I grew up in the Cologne area
0: of Germany. It's a largely Catholic area. Um, And I grew up there as a Protestant child of a mixed marriage. So my parents, um, my dad was Catholic, my mom was Protestant, and they went to the same elementary school. They couldn't drink from the same fountain in the 50s because Catholics and Protestants didn't mix at the fountain. Uh, Decades later, I went to that fountain as the Protestant child and we drank from the fountain all together Um, So bringing people uh, together over religion rather than separating them is something that my
1: region of upbringing taught me from early on. And Dave, where did you grow up?
2: I grew up in uh, central New Jersey. Uh, I was, uh, or I am the son of uh, two Christian parents. I was raised in the church and, um, Uh, Became a Christian at a young age. I was 11, I believe, Um, and uh, went off to college, uh, active in uh, on-campus ministries there, uh, Campus Crusade and InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Went off to college and worked in the computer industry for uh, about 10 or 12 years and then fell to call to ministry and uh, picked up the family. And We moved from New Jersey to Denver, Colorado, where I got my MDiv from Denver Seminary and began uh, my time in church ministry before transitioning over to hospice chaplaincy. Once I graduated from seminary, my Uh, My impression was that I would be doing ministry with the living. Uh, So working in a church setting, uh, I was always an associate pastor in charge of um, congregational care. And then I came to a place where I was not feeling Uh, fulfilled or not feeling like I was uh, able to focus on the care of people, which is really my passion. I love God. I love people. uh, I have gifts of compassion, mercy, service, and as an administrator of of different types of church programs, uh, I was not able to carry out that sense of call uh, to service. And so I made that transition (laughs) from ministry to the living Hmm. to ministry to the dying. And uh, it's just been a great fit for these last 10 years. Daniel, how do you describe your call
1: to this ministry?
0: I came to it late. So um, I've served a couple of churches in Germany. In 2008, we came to America, my wife and I, and served a couple of churches here. Along the way, I entered the military ministry, Mm. um, which put me on that path of clinical pastoral education, which was a requirement for endorsement there in my denomination. Mm. And then from that on, it just grew and grew and grew on the side of my church ministry, um, where I helped out as PRN hospital chaplain, and then uh, just wanted to do more of it. And here we are, um, been out of the local church pastorate for over a year now, and do this full-time along with the hospital and the military now. Um, It just grew. Uh, so the professionalism that caught my attention that was appealing to me it really came from that moment that in every congregation i served in the in the united states every family had one military connection or another mm. um, and that was just something i was connected to growing up i wanted to walk in those boots and understand those stories mm. and what comes with that um so i joined up and
1: um yeah uh that's how that grew together. So how was the experience uh, serving in the chaplains in the military for you?
0: I'm still doing that and that's a wonderful thing. Um, y- you learn a lot of things that you don't think about. I mean, there is those little things of showing up at the right time, at the right place, in the right uniform with the right attitude. And it's just um, experiences like that that also inform our hospice chaplains because hospice is a is a lot like it, um, you run around and run mission. Um, you go out with a purpose, do that thing, and then go back to headquarters, if you will. Um, and that works to think of it like, like a military mission sometimes. Um, yesterday I did a recon mission. So reconnaissance is when you go out on a mission and find out what's going on in the battlefield, because we had a patient where the caregiver said they might be moving soon, but we couldn't get a hold of them. So, I went just out to do my visit with them to find out, no, they're not moving quite away right now, but maybe in the future. So, finding things out, or a family that wasn't really interested in spiritual care, a nurse put me on a supply run, what we call it in the military. They need diapers. Why don't you just deliver some diapers? And boom, I had the greatest opportunity for a wonderful pastoral intervention there. Um, so, it's it's thinking uh, in, with a mission mindset, also the military. Um, has brought to me the experience of veterans and what they went through. And that is actually a formalized program now in hospice care. Um, they call it We the Veterans. And that is where the Department of Veteran Affairs who, uh, works together with the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization for standards of care and practice. Um, so I promote that here in our program, um, which is really a national recognition that every hospice program should try and work on. Um, and that comes with a lot of details. We can go into that deeper more. Mm.
1: Could you, uh, uh, Dev? Um, you've been in hospice, you said since you left uh, parish ministry, uh, now you're working yes. in hospice and you haven't looked back. So are there some experiences, you know, through your hospice journey that makes you feel like this is your home for ministry? This is where you want yes. to
2: be? Several years ago, we had a patient, who was a Vietnam veteran. And uh, as I got to know him and was able to build some trust with him, Mm. um, I asked him one day, how do you feel about you and God? And right away he said, God can't forgive me for what I've done. Mm. And I asked him, which I often do. uh, I asked Questions allowing the person to, to decline to answer. I, I never assume that they're going to follow my track. Um, so I asked him if he would tell me a story. And long story short, he had killed children and women along with his, his other uh, soldiers. And so he had carried uh, this guilt and shame for about 40 years um, and just could not believe that God would forgive him for that. And so I asked him if I could share some scriptures that talk about God's forgiveness And he, he said, yes, that would be okay. And uh, I I read to him the story of the prodigal son. And I read to him First John 1, 8 and 9. If you confess your sins, God is faithful and just to forgive you your sin and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And I shared with him Psalm 23 uh, that talks about God's faithful journey with us Mm. and drawing us unto himself. And so we talked about those for several visits. And uh, one night he was living with his brother and sister-in-law. And one night his brother couldn't sleep. And so he went downstairs and he sat next to uh, this man's bed and was praying for him. And the man woke up and he said, uh, I, am, I am ready to accept that God has forgiven me. Mm. And his brother was able to pray with him and, uh, and help him to become a Christian I share this story um, to give an example of how I keep my eyes and ears open, looking for opportunities to talk about the goodness of God, um, and and to share that with the patient and or their family. Uh, mm-hmm. Sometimes their family is uh, in just as much pain as as their loved one is mm. you know i would meet with the family after visiting the patient and we would pray together and uh we would talk about this man's journey uh he was an alcoholic from the time he returned home from vietnam uh until the time he was admitted to hospice and uh, so I was able to minister to the family and with the family uh, as we cared for this man.
1: Mm. That, that's powerful to see that kind of teamwork. Uh, Daniel, you have a unique situation. So you're doing ministry in three settings. You're active in, mm-hmm. as a pastor and as an army reserve and as a hospice chaplain. Is that correct?
0: Not local church anymore, no. So it's hospital, PRN, hospice full-time, and army part-time.
1: How are you balancing all this? (laughs) Ah, My wife says army is my hobby. (laughs) Um,
0: And I I can kind of see that um, because it fulfills the need for me. I mean, it feeds me to have a purpose, um, and it feeds my way of the warrior. In Japanese, they call that bushido. My mom and my pediatrician back at the time when I was four years old, they decided uh, that kid needs some more confidence, so let's put him in judo.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. So I became a martial artist and a judo instructor later on in college and whatnot. Mm. So I started on that path of the warrior, and that has been just with me. Um, And since structured sports is hard when you're grown-up and a job and family and all that, um, I put that energy into military ministry.
1: But now... I mean, somebody could say you're running away from something or you're running to something. Which is it? Both, always. (laughs) Constantly running. Well, it it
0: gives me a lot of opportunities to um, be with interesting folks. Um, When I look at the soldiers I work with, I had that one commander. um, He was a Muslim soldier, and he was a company commander. We were out there in the field doing exercises. And the field kitchen just wouldn't provide him with a halal meal, which is kind of not what we do. I mean, we're the American military. We support our soldiers. And the uh, sergeant in charge of the kitchen just wouldn't care and wouldn't budge and wouldn't even talk to the commander who was his superior. So um, as a chaplain, you have a unique role. You do come with a rank, but you don't have actually command authority. Mm. But whatever I do is on behalf of the big commander, right? So I have some pull. Um, so I barged into the kitchen and basically um, chewed out that sergeant until he finally did provide some halal food for all Muslim soldiers there. Mm. Um, but then on the other side, you have those soldiers that start stealing stuff. And sometimes that's a nuisance, but sometimes it's really complicated situations. We had boxes of MREs, those field rations. They disappeared towards the end of the exercise when people were fixing to go home. And that one guy was found out, we found out he doesn't have an address. So we had a homeless soldier who, after annual training, went back to the streets because he wasn't in the tents anymore with us, and he didn't know where his next meal was supposed to come from. So he stole the field rations to take to the bridge where he slept that night. Hmm. How do you let him get away with it? Yeah, of course you do. That's what I do, right? Hmm. Um, So it's, it's those experiences that make it all worth it.
1: So what is your, as both of you, what is your theology of ministry? How would you describe your theology of ministry?
0: The more I've come into the chaplaincy, the more it turned to St. Martin of Tours. Um, he's the patron saint of soldiers. As I told you earlier, I grew up in a largely Catholic area in Germany, and we have this tradition of um St. Martin's festivals where there's a parade where the soldier uh, rides on his horse. He's a Roman soldier in the Roman Empire. So you got that centurion type on his horse and the kids build little lanterns um, following him uh, to the bonfire and then they go trick-or-treating. It's uh, just a different type of trick-or-treating they do there. Um, But the story of St. Martin is where he rode into the city of Amiens, which is now France, but again, this is 4th uh, century, so Roman army, occupying Gaul, basically. Um, and he found a beggar on the road, and he uh, drew his military sword and cut his big fat cloak and shared with the beggar so the beggar wouldn't freeze because he was um, it was a cold winter's night and he didn't have anything on. And that story is, um, for the patron saint of soldiers, important because sometimes you've got to break stuff to make things happen, but also... Um, you're okay with what you got. Whatever you bring to the field, you can make an impact. Um, so he accomplished that mission of caring for that man by cutting his cloak in half and sharing it. And that's what I do as a chaplain. I come with what I got and I do what I can. And I'm there to help folks with what they go through.
2: Hmm.
1: That's powerful, man.
2: Dave, I think my philosophy of ministry, uh, be twofold. Um, Uh, I, I continue to serve in our church on a volunteer basis. And so when I'm in the church setting, I'm expecting that as folks come to church, the majority of them know what to expect in terms of scriptures and prayer and witness and preaching. But as a chaplain, I understand that um, patients and their families are not always in that same place. And so as Daniel said, I come with what I have. And as I said earlier, I look for opportunities to uh, care for them either in a secular way uh, or in a, a spiritual way or in a religious way. And, uh, and I try to meet that person and their family where they are and, uh, and love on them with the love of God, uh, hoping that they sense Uh, a blessing from God and his presence uh, with them. Hmm. With the patient or family who were angry, um, I will uh, dig a little bit and see if they might be willing to uh, just allow me to sit with them. I'm a vocalist, and so I often sing, Uh, for the patients. Um, I'll read, and so I'll look for ways um, to build uh, some relationship or some trust with them. And I pray that there'll be an opportunity to explore their anger and help them to be able to talk about that. And then I look for ways to Uh, bring healing uh to them in regard to that anger so um
0: houston calls itself one of the most diverse areas in the country so i i have a lot of different folks from different walks of life and different Mm. faith systems here um and as folks come from newer generations on hospice now um diversity gets greater and our portion of atheists or agnostics just rises. Um, And I find that the most interesting journeys, actually. Um, When somebody calls themselves a devout atheist um, in Houston, Texas, that can be a tough spot to be in. So they need a lot of chaplain care from me. I have this one lady right now. She's in a facility here where you have all these nurses and aides and caregivers that really mean well and love Jesus. So they want to love on that woman. So they tell her Bible stories all the time. They pray for her all the time. And she says, leave me alone with that. So here I am in charge of her spiritual well-being. And I find it my job to allow her her autonomy. Mm. Because she needs the intervention of feeling that sense of agency. I mean, she loses all that control under hospice care as it is. Her body is not her own anymore. Everybody does what they want to do. And now they intrude her spirit too. So I'm there to educate the staff in the facility and tell them that woman needs some autonomy. She needs her self-respect. She needs to be free. Uh, Leave her alone. So in the name of Jesus, keep your prayers to yourself. Yeah, Um, the loving thing to do is to leave her alone. Um, And then on the other side, some uh, who are really angry at religion, they came there because they were hurt through religion. Um, When I ministered in Utah, I had a lot of uh, what we call recovering Mormons. Um, So the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a wonderful thing when you live in it. But if you don't live within those standards, Um, you fall from grace, and that can be a devastating experience. And um, sometimes people just need distance from religion for a few years. Mm. So I found that it takes about seven years for a former Mormon to um, be even stable in their emotional and spiritual life to think about those issues again. They just need to stay away from it. It's like recovery from anything else. Mm. Uh, Sometimes abstinence and staying away and staying sober
1: is a real good thing. That's good. We'll take a little break and then we'll be right back.
0: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at
1: www.hospicechaplaincy.com. Uh, welcome back. Um, before the break, we're talking to Daniel and Dave. Not all hospice patients are religious. And not all hospice patients will want hospice chaplain to come in. But for those non-religious chaplain, uh, 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 patients that want you to come in, how do you minister to them? Um, hospice Compassers has this
0: diagnostic tool that looks for the greatest concern. Mm. And that's usually what I'm looking for. What's what's their greatest concern in the emotional and spiritual side of life? Um, And especially when they're not religious, um, they still have all kinds of needs. And religion can be an intervention that is helpful or hurtful. Um, Just because I have that in my toolbox doesn't mean I need to apply it. I mean, just because I have a hammer doesn't mean every problem is a nail. Mm -hmm. so, um, I'm there to support them in what they need, and a lot of times religion can be, be in the way of that. Let me give you an example of how I see Karl Marx had it right. Marx na- na- calls religion opium for the masses. It's basically numbing. Uh, And it can't do that because it's comforting, right? It's a pain medication, just like all kinds of opioids that we use. We provide comfort care and religion can be part of that. And I see a lot of patients and family use that liberally, um, smothering all the sweetness of faith on their loved one. And that is good because the patient needs all the comfort they can get. And if that comes from the sweetest religion, so be it. Um, But if it doesn't, then that's not helpful. So we need to keep that away from them. You don't want to overdose them. Um, The same intervention as any medication religion is just that. Um, And if they need to stay away from that, they need to do that. And I've seen them all. Hmm.
1: What are the major needs you found among your hospice patients?
0: Oh, there's a nice one that I uh, call autonomy as well. When a patient decides to refuse chaplain care, mm. um, sometimes my nurses on my team would say, oh, I'm so sorry, they can't take advantage of what you have to offer. But I tell them, they just did. Because they expressed their autonomy mm. to say no.
2: They don't yes. get to
0: do that much. They hardly can refuse anything because everybody handles them however they see fit. But with me, they got the liberty to say no and i'm able to provide that empowerment by hey yes that's what we're doing i I leave you alone um so i'm i'm more than happy to provide that empowerment for them um and as we touched on religion and how it can be in the way a lot of times i find um that people have a hard time switching to the hospice philosophy in the family um in military families it's Uh, We never accept defeat is the army slogan there. Um, And then you got to change your mission that not surviving the longest, but surviving in the best way. So quality of life over quantity of life. Switching that in your head is sometimes hard for military families. Or if you're from a very religious background, they sometimes have this hope for miracles and they would ask me to pray for that miracle. And then I ask what exactly is that miracle about? And if that turns out to be, we want her to be healthy and walk again and be healed, then I see that we have an issue of denial, um, that they're not quite on board with the hospice philosophy quite yet. Um, so we need to transform that hope. And that is just as tough as transforming your mission if you got that military mindset. Because uh, in my faith, there is room for... Letting go and finding peace and comfort. um, A miracle doesn't have to mean that you live in a certain way or a certain length. You can just be comfortable where you're at. And um, if religion stands in the way of their mind says, yeah, we tried all options and now it's time for comfort care and allow grandma to pass peacefully, their religion sometimes says, no, but we got to hope against that. And helping them reconcile those two differences is then part of my
1: job. So, how? Uh, what? What uh, therapeutic intervention have you found helpful to help families reconcile those differences?
2: It is not always uh, easy to do. Most of the time, it's not easy to do. I currently have a uh, a woman on her service who. Um, has had a lot of dreams and visions, uh, both of uh, people from her family that she has loved and of people who she she doesn't know. And they seem to be evil people that are beckoning her uh, down certain roads that she doesn't want to go. And this has been uh reported to me by the family, not by the patient uh-huh. And so I enlisted a couple of prayer partners to pray for her and to pray for me as I met with her the first time and subsequent visits and uh it it seemed to me that every time I met with her, uh she... Um, she was just in a very positive, uh, hopeful place. And then as I went out and talked with the family, that's when I would get all of these stories of her spiritual distress. And after several visits, it occurred to me that it may be the family that is bringing that spiritual distress. Into her life, and so I've begun to um, work with the family and try to find out what it is that is causing this distress in the patient. So that has that has been a difficult uh, case uh, for me that I continue to work on. So how is the
1: family and the patient responding to your interventions? Uh,
2: The patient is responding well. The family is very welcoming and friendly, but they talk with me about um, occult uh, practices that they've done in the past. And, um, and have blended that with um, some Christian religious practices as well. And so uh, I'm trying to sort uh, all of that out and trying to um, understand how their experience and their interactions with the patient may be bringing that spiritual distress to her that they have witnessed. Uh, But I have not yet witnessed.
0: In that arena, what I really love about hospice is that it's a team sport, that we couldn't do it ourselves. Yes. Um, And I have nurses on our team and aides that sometimes, um, but we just chat about patients um, and learn things about our Service for them that we couldn't do our own. So, a lot of times when um, the patient starts seeing people from the past mentally go into places, um, people that the living don't know about, all of a sudden the patient starts talking to them. I'm in a unique position here at Hospice Compasses that um, we're a larger institution where we have the bereavement and the volunteer coordinators or separate. Um, positions with high speed folks doing their thing where I do just the chaplain part. So um, that's more of the team approach, even the psychosocial together with our social workers and whatnot. So sometimes I may be able to refer when I see that anticipatory grief is big in a family, uh, multiple losses, traumatic losses that they have that are now coming up again, or just not being able to deal with the impending loss. I may refer to our grief coordinator way ahead of time Uh, just so she has a foot in the door and can work with them before it becomes urgent. Um, Education, the most important thing that I see is self-care. Just the other day, I had a daughter caring for her mom, Hmm. and she wouldn't dare go to church because she couldn't leave mama alone. Going to church would really feed her emotionally and spiritually uh, and make her a better caregiver because she's more available and ready for that mission then. but she, yeah, doesn't want to take care of herself because she wants to be there for mom. But the loving thing to do would be to love mom as yourself, right? So you've got to love yourself, too. So you've got to take care of yourself, too. Um, so that is uh, education and self-care, uh, where how people process that. Taking care of themselves is important, too. Um, and that education piece also goes for the team. Um, as I said, Houston is a very diverse place. So when we have Jewish chaplains come on um, service, for example, a Jewish patients, um, sometimes I got to remind our folks, remember the Sabbath. I mean, it's a very simple thing um, to miss because everybody's schedule is crazy, but it may just be the respectful thing to work around the Sabbath if possible. And a lot of times we're able to accommodate that. Um, so... Educating folks is a good thing, and um, I'm glad Dave and all our other chaplains here um, who do that for our patients and their families.
1: So Daniel, I'm curious about your work with. Um, you said you work with veterans, or your hospice has a division that works with veterans. Could you explain more about that? Uh, maybe clarify that for us.
0: Yeah. So we honor veterans as a program that is in collaboration between the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, which most of our organizations belong to anyway, and the Department of Veteran Affairs. So the driving force behind that is that the VA has um, a special benefit um, that covers hospice services, just like Medicare and Medicaid do. Um, it's tertiary, so it doesn't happen much because most other benefits um, apply first. but. Over 90% of the hospice that VA pays for is not provided at or through the VA, but through community organizations like the ones that we represent all here. So they want to have a say in how that is done. So there are standards of practice and care, and programs can apply for levels um, of excellence in how they educate themselves, their teams, and their families. One of the first and most important tools is a military checklist that is part of your admission process, that you find out when and where patients serve, and that informs our care. So raising awareness among the families and our staff and just supporting patients. So once we have that military checklist, they get presented with a certificate and a pin and honored for their service, and it provides um, pride and comfort to the family and the patient, and it educates our staff. Um, And then... um, Yeah, there is that patient that I had. He was a Navy surgeon. Um, He was hardly responsive, but his wife really found her identity in being the wife of the Navy surgeon, and he served under Admiral Nimitz, so she was really proud of that. Mm. Um, I had this one guy. It was really important to have that military checklist in place, that we follow the processes of these programs. because he was in D-Day. So he was um, on the beaches of Normandy. And I went out there to do my initial spiritual assessment on the actual D-Day anniversary, and I didn't know. Hmm. And that's just sad that we missed that. Um, so it's important to do those uh, intake processes. So it's 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 a great program. We honor veterans.org. Um, most of our programs in the Compassus network are part of that, and then I like pushing boundaries of that. Mm-hmm. Um, with the international population here in Houston, um, we have a patient from Israel, so he served in the Israeli Defense Forces, and of course, uh, the VA in the U.S. doesn't have a certificate for that. But we took that idea and recreated um, a. Um, certificate honoring him for his service in his branch back there, um, which we love to do. Or I had a patient from Germany um, and the Bundeswehr has a recognition badge that you can apply for as a family, Um, so we help the family process that. It's just taking care of folks uh, where they find their identity and their pride um, and honor them in that way, and also educate your staff. For example, our briefing coordinator, who was a military wife most of her career, um, she reminds us that those fans that you have on the ceiling Mm. and the Vietnam folks, you want to be careful with that because they feel still that chopper um, making that noise over them. And they don't want to wake up in a room that is all dark and has all that noise. Um, Just being aware of where you find your patients and what their needs may be based on their military service.
1: That's really powerful. Um, man, I like that. Uh, how long you have been doing that?
0: Well, when I came on board here, they were on one star, and now we're working on our third star. Um, I, I've been here a little over a year. Um, but it's a lot of education and a lot of training um, that goes into that. So I highly recommend all your programs. Check that out.
1: Mm. Thank you for that recommendation. Uh, Final thoughts, uh, any advice for other hospice chaplains listening to this around the world?
2: Well, I wanted to touch on a point that uh, Daniel made earlier about uh, encountering people of different religions. Mm. And I've had several Jewish patients, um, and uh, sometimes they'll allow me to minister from an Old Testament kind of setting of uh, praying to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, uh, reading Psalms, for instance. But many times I'll reach out to a rabbi in the community and um, try to coordinate one of them to come in and minister to the religious needs of this patient that I'm unable to do.
1: Daniel? Yeah, I'll second that. Yeah,
0: I'll second that. In the Army, we call that perform or provide. As a chaplain, Mm. there are certain things I can perform. Um, On Ash Wednesday, I'm all over the place in facilities imposing ashes on everybody. But there are some things, like I'm not Catholic. I can't give you communion your way, um, but I'll certainly provide that for you by reaching out to a person who can.
1: Uh, Thank you very much, gentlemen. You're welcome. Good luck cutting all that. (laughs) (laughs) Pray for me. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Amen. That was Chapman Daniel Howes and Dave Chambers. Thank you for listening.
0: This podcast was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Joliet, Illinois. Audio Hive Podcasting is a studio dedicated to podcast recording, editing, and production. For more information, you can find us at audiohivepodcasting.com.